Amen. I have missed hearing you sing. Julie and I had some vacation time, and it is just a delight to worship our Lord with you. How great thou art. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I want to call the kids forward, and if you can help me with uh, my sermon, that would be great. So if you would like to come up, we're going to play a game this morning. Come on up, bud, and have a seat right here. We're going to play a game that, uh, that I played with my daughter when she was um, a teenager. And we would play this game when we were traveling, and she would put on a CD or something in our car and it was called Guess the Song. So on occasion, she would say, Dad, you've got to guess this song, and then I wouldn't get it, and then, and then I, would, or I would say, I need a hint. And she, know, she would say, no hint. And then I'd say, just a little bit of a clue, just a little bit of a clue, and then sometimes I'd get it, and she said, you only got that because I gave you the clue. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a, um, a song, something that's very famous, a very famous song, okay? So I'm going to give you some options. First of all, it could be the song from Star Wars. That's pretty famous. It could be from Frozen, from the girl uh, Tesla, right? That was her name. Elsa. Okay, I get cars and the girls mixed up all the time. Um, (laughs) Or it could be Toy Story, or it could be something else, okay? So it's one of the three. It's, It's Frozen or Star Wars, or Toy Story, or something else. So you got to help me, because it's a pretty famous song. And oh, by the way, you guys can play too if you want to. Here's the song. Here's the song. You didn't get it? Tokyo. Yeah, you're, absolutely. Yeah, it's the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, we, have, we love to watch the Olympics. And you, do you know that it's the greatest, it's the biggest athletic games in the world? And not only, I mean, if you're watching this online as well too, uh, it's hard to turn off the TV at night. I mean, my wife and I are kind of like this. We got to have the Olympics go off because we're not getting any sleep. Well, the best part of the, about the Olympics, not only are they grand and glorious, but what the Olympics do is they talk about stories. And probably one of the neatest stories that has come has been this gal by the name of Lydia Jacoby. She was 17 years old, a junior, and now she's in 12th grade. She's from Stewart, Alaska, way up north. And out of nowhere, she won the 100-meter breaststroke, and that's what you do. You go like this, you go, ah, 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 ah. yeah, I'm not very good at the breaststroke, but you get the idea. And, uh, but, what would ha- but what happened is when she won, she wasn't expected to win, and the people back home went crazy when she won. They call them watch parties. And this is what happened when Lydia Jacoby won, and her friends back home at her school watched her win. I want you to watch this video, but watch the kid in the middle who's got sandals like this. He almost jumps out of his sandals. He's great. Watch. Here it is. 
right there. Watch him. Watch him. There he goes. He's crazy. He doesn't know what to do. She won. She won the Olympic gold medal. She wasn't supposed to do that. You see that? How are you feeling, Sienna? I'm feeling very excited. You guys can go back to your seats. Thank you. Well, one of the things about the Olympics that's so special, some of you guys know this, I brought a team uh, to the Olympics in 1996, 75 people, and so I have a personal connection with the Olympics, did some street evangelism, and one of the things about the Olympics that's incredible is that there's so many stories. I don't know about you, but we really do find it really hard to turn off the TV at night, not just because of the grand games. I love surfing and water polo and basketball and track and field that starts this week. But the individual stories about the athletes are absolutely fascinating, aren't they? The training that they do. But there's something that gripped me about the Olympics this year, and I had to kind of go back and watch it again. And if you're going to watch the Olympics, you'll see this commercial that comes from Google. And <clears throat> it's not just a product placement, but as one of my professors said, media is both a map and a mirror for what's going on. Think about that. Media can be both a map and a mirror. And the Google commercial goes like this. Our country is searching. Our whole country is searching. And then this 45-second commercial pops up, and you see all these people who are searching. How do you start a job? What about a relationship? How do I do this? And they show the toolbar. They show the search bar. And when I watched it this week, I couldn't get past that phrase. Our whole country is searching. And I, I just had to pause, and I'm not sure how that strikes you, but I had to pause, and I looked at Psalm 113, and I thought, could this possibly be what people are searching for? Could the scriptures possibly tell us what people are searching for, and emphatically, emphatically, we can say, yes, indeed it is. So I want to encourage you to find a copy of the scriptures. If you're watching us online, you can pull this up online if you'd like to as well, too. And we're going to take a look at Psalm 113 this morning. And this morning, we begin a six-week series in a smaller section of the book of Psalms. <clears throat> this, these Psalms are packaged together, and so let me just set the context for us before we look at Psalm 113. Just a couple, three things I want to help you with and just give you kind of some insights so that it will make sense a little bit more. So we, we start with this series, Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118, these psalms are packaged together, and they're called the Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. -L -E they're the psalms of praise. That's a Hebrew word. All of them are packaged together. And what's interesting is that these psalms were sung 
for, by Jewish people during festivals, including Passover. And the good scholarship says that these were the songs that Jesus sung when it refers to Matthew 26, 30, that after the supper they went and sung hymns as they went to the garden. So I'm not sure about you, but that just kind of gives me the, the tingles. When I read this, I read what Jesus sang. Here I am 2,000 years later reading what my Lord and my God sang. Wow. The word hallel means praise. Now, the second thing that you want to note before we take a look at Psalm 113 is that Right away, you see praise in verse 1, and then praise in verse 9. So instead of thinking a bookend, think about this. Think about it being a complete cycle. And one scholar says, when you read verse 1, watch for the wink-wink of the Trinity, because the name the Lord is used three times. Kind of a subtle wink, if you will, of the Trinity. So this is a package deal. It starts with praise, it ends with praise, but the, maybe the most important thing is the last verse. The last verse that we'll land on and that we'll meet should not be seen as anticlimactic, but it should show us the glory of God, that the great not only identifies but becomes like the ungreat. And the language that's used at the second half is powerful. So reading in Jesus' name from Psalm 113, we read this. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the Lord, excuse me. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord's exalted over all the earth, over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, great and mighty God, the one we call our Heavenly Father, you alone reign in the heavens and you reign above the heavens. You are enthroned so high that the psalmist writer states you need to stoop to see sky and earth. Before time and before the creation of the world, before women and men were made, you ruled and now today you do as well, and nothing surprises you. So we come to you this morning humbly asking that you open our hearts and minds for insight, prompts, and whispers from the Holy Spirit. These are not merely words that we read, but these are inspired, life-giving, sweeter-than-honey kind of words, much better than winning riches of gold and silver, is knowing you, experiencing you, and the insights that come from you. So take this message, I pray, and feed these women and men of God, these children, these adults, these students, these sweet senior saints. Only you can change hearts. 
So we are open to you this morning, moving in our church, and we pray that you would move for your glory and for your kingdom and for your fame and for your namesake, for reconciliation between one another, for redemption, for hope. We need you, Jesus. Thank you for becoming one of us. What a mighty God we serve. Amen and amen. I want to encourage you to find a passage of scripture, a copy of the scriptures as you have, and because it's poetry that we're studying, actually that's how Psalms is classified as poetry, I want to just give you something that will help you understand this a little bit more. And so if you have a Bible or if it's an electronic, somehow, some way, mark a split between verses 1 through 3 and then 4 through 9. 1 through 3 and 4 through 9. And don't think of these as being two parts as much as the first part will be compounded and built on in the second part. Compounding. Both, uh, you hear that word maybe financially. You're compounding interest. When you come to the second part, it compounds on what's laid out. So this is the uh, first point that I want to share with you. And if you're watching online, you can now download the bulletin that's there. The first thing I want to share with you is this, that there's nothing too great for him. There's nothing too great for him. Right away in the very first verse, it is the servants, not of Pharaoh. This was sung during Passover, the celebration of Pharaoh. But it's the servants who take the lead in praising the Lord. When I was on our vacation, I read one of the many books that I read was a book by Francis Schaeffer, a brilliant thinker, Christian thinker, who influenced Chuck Colson, R.C. Sproul, Josh McDowell, others like that. He wrote a book called No Little People, No Little Places, 16 sermons. In the third sermon that he wrote, he, wrote, he talked about the servants of God. This is what he wrote, Francis Schaeffer from No Little People. Among religious writings, the Bible is unique in its attitudes towards great people. Even many Christians' biographies puff up the characters they describe. But the Bible exhibits the whole person, so much so it's almost embarrassing at times. If we would teach our children to read the Bible truly, it would be a good vaccination against cynical realism from the non-Christian side because the Bible portrays its characters as honestly as any debunker or modern cynic ever would. Of course, we usually think about the strong points of biblical characters, and that's right. Normally, we should look at the victories of biblical characters and the wonder of their closeness to God and the exciting ways God used them according to the faith and faithfulness they displayed. But let's not be embarrassed by the other side. The Bible's candor, even of its greatest leaders, is the portrayal of their weaknesses quite without embarrassment and without false hope. Schaefer goes on to describe biblical character after biblical character, starting with Abraham. Abraham, who is called the father of, who was credited, his faith was credited as righteousness, who lied about his wife including Sarah, who also lied to God and laughed at God. He goes on to describe Moses. We have this tension that God still uses broken people in his greatness. 
by his grace and by his mercy. There's nothing too great for him. So it's important for us to understand this, that he is both Lord over all time and he is Lord over all places. He's Lord over all time and Lord over all places. You'll notice that in verse 1 and 2, the word name is used two times. And this idea changed, I think, my understanding as I grew as a man of God. This key understanding of the names of God. The names of God should not be considered just words like God or Lord, but his name tells us everything he does, and it says his name to let us know who he is and how he acts. The book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says this, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. And one of the ways that he makes that plain is in his different names. Have you ever studied the names of God? Have you ever done that study? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of this message, and I'll give you a very practical way you can do that. One of my favorite names for God is El Roy, E-L-R-O-I. It came from a woman who was pregnant, who was homeless, who was friendless, and she was carrying a child that she, I don't think, actually wanted to have. Her name was Hagar. And the word for the name for God that I appreciate so much, Elroy, is this, God sees, God knows, God understands. He's aware of my situation. So when I want to pray this prayer, God, do you see what's happening? His answer resoundingly is, yes, I do, son. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. He is Lord over all times. He is Lord over World War II. When crazy Hitler went through Europe and blew apart Europe and destroyed God's people, my grandmother from Milwaukee said the people in her church believed that Hitler was the Antichrist. I think pretty good reason why, huh? He's Lord over all times. He's Lord over school openings, bitcoins, pandemic, TikTok, from now and forevermore. The great Baptist preacher, Spurgeon, was so good here in his understanding. He says, forevermore signifies, in verse 2, duration. There will be more wows. There will be more gasps. Can we ever cease to praise the name of the Lord? Can we even imagine a period in which the praise of Israel shall no more surround the throne of the divine majesty? That is impossible. C.S. Lewis, the great British writer, said this. The first two words that we might say in heaven is this. Of course. Of course. He is Lord over all times. We need to be reminded of that. He's not surprised what's going to happen this month. He's not surprised what's going to happen this fall. He is Lord over all times. He is Lord over all places. Look at the scriptures. The scriptures tell us from Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to the setting, 
My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. The idea that from the rising of the sun to the going down, it does not mean only from morning to night. The idea is that it's places and spaces from east to west and all that lies between the rising and setting of the sun. The English Baptist preacher in the 1700s, John Gill, wrote this. Many have worshipped the sun and served the creator, creature, more than the creator. All within the compass of the creatures of God and the care of his providence are therefore bound to praise him, and he has had this tribute due to him, unto him but by a few. But here it respects and it proclaims gospel times when the gospel shall be sent around the world. The church is not dying, friends. The church is very much alive. It's most alive where there is persecution in hard times. The book of Revelation tells us this. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now here's the link between the two sections, verses 1 through 3. Nothing is too great for him. And the next section, verses 4 through 9. Here is the link. This is so helpful to me, and I hope it's a blessing to you. God's majesty and power and magnificence never implies his remoteness to those who look to, to him. His majesty, his power, his might, his goodness, they never imply his remoteness. Instead, watch this, it implies his exhaustive attention to detail and his inexhaustible ability to care for his faithful. That's the difference. He is both infinite and he is intimate, and I am finite. What a God we serve. So the second part of this psalm says this, that no one is too small with him. No one is too small. It compounds from, verse, from, the, from the first half. He is seated on high, verse 4 tells us, yet he looks down on the lowly, even the heavens cannot contain him. His glory is over the whole earth. Can you imagine that we get to adore him and see him and see him face to face someday and say, how truly great you are. Wow. He is Lord over all human power and Lord with the lowly. Verse 5 uh, tells us this, this phrase, this powerful phrase. Look at what it says. Who is like the Lord your God? That's implied or signified throughout the Scriptures. Let me just give you a few sprinklings where you see this in the Scriptures. From Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, it says this. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Then the major prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 7. I'm going to go real quick here, so if you just want to jot the verses down, you can go back. I apologize. 
Isaiah 44, 7 says this, Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and yet what is to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. The minor prophet Micah, Micah 7, verse 18, picks this up as well. Implied, who is like you, God, who pardons sins and forgives transgressions of the remains of his inheritance. You did not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is like you? And finally, it's not just in this psalm, but it's in another psalm. Write this down, Psalm 35, verse 10. Psalm 35, verse 10 says this, My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those who are too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob him. And what a beautiful segue into the language that's used at the end of the psalm. Notice the language of the one who is communicating this. There is no one too small with him. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your situation. He knows what you're going through. The language that's used here in verses 7 is powerful. Notice what it says in verse 7. He rescues the poor from the dust. Verse 7b, I'm not sure what your translation says. Some translation says ash heap, garbage dump. The King James is a little awkward on this, but it's on point. It says he rescues people from the dung hill. Verse 9 uses a powerful, poignant phrase that's in Middle Eastern literature. He visits the barren woman. Godly woman would feel the intense sorrow and disappointment of a childless home until they receive divine announcement and accomplishments of maternal joy. You have to understand this culture that not to have children would cause incredible reproach and even a form of social death. Abraham's wife, Jacob's wife, found barrenness so stigmatizing that they each offered their handmaid as a surrogate to their husbands in hope that they would build and be built up through a son through surrogacy. Rachel, who was finally the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, went so far as to say in Genesis 30, verse 1, give me children or I'll die. Rachel understood her gift of God opening up her womb. And when she finally bore Joseph her first, when she finally bore Joseph, her firstborn son, she proclaimed, God has taken away my reproach. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, said the same thing in Luke chapter 1, verse 7. You can go on and on throughout the scriptures. We get different pictures of, of women who felt the social angst of not bearing children. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, in Genesis 25. The wife of Menno, the mother of Samson, in Judges 13. According to biblical sources, is infertility a punishment for sin? Short answer, no. No, no, no. Every birth is seen as a miracle. That's why we partner as a church with Apple Pregnancy. That's why we want to champion life. 
because it comes from a broader understanding that life is a gift and that it is God that does the miracle work. Amen? Yeah. The absence of a miracle could hardly be a reflection of some human sin. So the Bible uses this really tender term to say that he will visit the barren. In verses 7 through 8, come right from almost verbatim from a woman who experienced that as well too. Her name was her name was Hannah. And you should read her story. Read her story of God visiting her at a very old age where God gave her God gave her Samuel. And then I want you to consider your reality. Your reality because do you see what it says there? He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. What does that mean? Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Write that down and go back to that and read that. Ephesians 2, 8, 5 through 8. It means that we are both co-seated and we're co-resurrected. This is what Paul says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. When the Bible uses the idea of being seated, it means completed. Seated means completed. Seated means victory. That's what's going on here. The New York pastor, Tim Keller, who many of us appreciate his ministry and his writing, said this, God's greatness is seen in his regard for the ungreat. It is the ungreat that are here. The ungreat in the ash heap, the ungreat in the dunghill, the ungreat in the barren. In Jesus, we see one who proved himself great to become small enough himself. The star and the galaxy maker became the savior in the manger. How great thou art. How great thou art. This is what we're searching for. So as we do each Sunday, we want to respond to God's message. We don't want to just hear the word. We want it to let it sink in our hearts as disciples, as we are equipped, and now we go. So my first question that I have to ask you is this. What name of God encourages your soul? I shared with you mine, Elroy. I have a beat-up uh, copy, similar copy of what I want to give you. It's called The Names of God, and it's dog-eared and coffee-stained and goobers on it because it's just real life in my life. And I like to go back and look over the names of God and go, oh, yeah, that one's true. That one's true. That one's true. The Elroy is one that I come back to all the time. And if you're watching online, you can go to our, our bulletin there and download it. There's a copy of the names of God, 30 days of praying the names and attributes of God. There's a copy of this, a print copy of this at the Welcome Center. What a great month, last month, to take one name for God and just pray it, think about it, let it marinate in your heart and soul. Which name for God? Number two is this, who comes to your mind? 
Who comes to your mind when you think about this term that the whole country, all over the country, people are searching? Who comes to your mind? How might God want to use you to your neighbor, to a work associate, to someone in your life? How might God want to use you? It might mean doubling down on fasting and praying. I had a conversation with a student uh, when I was at camp and uh, just looked at her and just said, do you pray and fast for your brother? Do you pray and fast? Maybe find one day that you just say, I'm going to pray and fast. I'm going to skip a meal Wednesday for lunch. That's my day to pray and fast and to intercede for people in my life who I know who are searching. Wasn't that incredible? And finally this, why does it matter? Why does it matter that nothing is too great for him and nothing is, and no one is too small for him? Why does that matter? Because people matter to God. So let me tell you a story. This is the story of David Block. David is a visiting Harvard professor of astronomy. He's a South African guy. He's Jewish. And so growing up in South Africa, he heard the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as he heard the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he wondered if this one that he heard about so much actually was personal. So when he went to the university, he studied things like mathematics and computer science. And at age 19, he submitted a thesis to this, the Royal Astronomy Society of London. Wow. At 19, it was received by the Royal Society of Astronomy of London, and people wanted reprints. He writes, spiritually during this time, This period was very dry for me. I remember attending a meeting at the Royal Astronomy Society graced by Stephen Hawking, the Stephen Hawking. The atmosphere was intellectually stimulating, but there was inwardly something or someone who was missing. To be brutally honest, I didn't know God. I went back to my professor in South Africa, Professor Hurst, and I said, Are we, as Shakespeare said in Macbeth, just a fleeting shadow that appears and then disappears? What is our reason for living? What is the purpose of life? Is it possible to have a personal encounter with the creator of the cosmos? His professor pointed him to a Christian minister, and that Christian minister opened up the scriptures to the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, and Paul affirms that Jesus, Yeshua, is the stumbling block for Jewish people but those who are freely choose to him to believe in him will never be put to shame. So he realized that Jesus, the stumbling block, had fulfilled all the scriptures of the Hebrew scriptures, and at age 22, he became a follower of Christ. Somehow along the way, he writes, I aimed my first telescope at Saturn in the heavens, and when I beheld Saturn with its tilted system of rings in all its majesty and splendor, I suspected in my heart that there existed not merely a great designer, but a personal God. But I hadn't yet experienced a still small voice of forgiveness and reassurance. Reflecting on these moments now, I realized that they had been infused by God's grace. He had been planting a spiritual seed Every time I gazed in the heavens, it was as if Jesus were sitting at my table, in my case, looking over my shoulder as I peered through the telescope, just as he had when he occupied his followers 
on the road to Emmaus. You can read the rest of the story. It's called What the Heavens Declared to a Young Astronomer. You can pick up a copy if you want. That's at the Welcome Center as well, too. People matter. Those who are searching can find the one who is great and the one who deals with grace and mercy to those of us who are small. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage of Scripture, this powerful passage of Scripture from Psalm 113. What a beautiful reminder it is for us that there is no one who is out of your care. I thank you, Lord, that your power and your glory do not discredit you from knowing us and caring for us. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll do your work through your people. Amen and amen.